Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's Meet the Artist interview. This program is brought to you by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'd also like to welcome our online listeners who will be listening to this program through our website, www.sfballet.org. Today is Sunday, April 15, 2012, and we are in the War Memorial Opera House before a matinee performance of Program 7. This program features three works by George Balanchine, Divertimento No. 15, Scotch Symphony, and The Four Temperaments. My name is Jennifer Kavakovich. I'm the Board Relations Manager for San Francisco Ballet, and our guest today is San Francisco Ballet's visiting scholar, Beth Genet. She's the professor of dance history and art history at the University of Michigan, specializing in 20th century American and British ballet, as well as dance in the American film musical. She also has a special interest in George Balanchine and his relationship to popular as well as classical dance. Professor Genet, or Beth, was also a principal researcher for the George Balanchine Foundation's project, Popular Balanchine, on Balanchine's work in Hollywood. Uh, her next book to be published by Oxford University Press is A Study of Dance in the American Musical Film and the Contributions of Balanchine, Fred Astaire, and Jean Kelly. Welcome, Beth. Thank you. Now, many of our audience members who've come to our performances before will know George Balanchine and be familiar with his work, but not everyone will be. So perhaps we could start by talking a little bit about his, um, his history and his work. Well, um, first of all, George Balanchine is one wonderful choreographer. I would, that, that's the kind of, that's what he is. He's a great, great choreographer. He's been compared to Shakespeare um, and Mozart in the depth and the scope of his work. Uh, so you have someone who's really, really special in the 20th century. He also brought ballet to some extent to America along with his cohort of Russians Russian dancers that were exiled by the Russian Revolution. So it all starts around 1933 when he's invited by Lincoln Kirstein to come to the United States. Um, he comes here, he sets up the School of American Ballet, which is still is in existence. He begins uh, establishing his own company by fits and starts over the 30s and into the 40s. And by the way, his one of his first dancers and wonderful dancer um, is the patriarch of your company which is directly in the line of succession if you want to think of, of Balanchine and that's Lou Christensen. So you have a strong connection to Mr. B here. Um, in 1948 the New York City Ballet was kind of permanently set up at uh, City Center in New York and then at the end of the uh, 60s it moved or maybe middle 60s, it moved to Lincoln Center where it is now and it remains one of the premier ballet companies in the world. Um, Balanchine choreographed many, many, many ballets um, and luckily they're being preserved by companies like this one. There isn't probably a company in the world that doesn't have a Balanchine ballet or more than one Balanchine ballet. And Choreographers as well as dancers speak with real reverence um, about his inventiveness, um, the way he combined ballet from the old Russian tradition, which before that was French, with 
new move, movements from modern life to really create a modern American ballet. I mean, we tend to think of ballet as, when people say ballet to you, you tend to think of a, someone in a, in, a, in a tutu, you know what I mean, putting their arms over their head, and on, you know, it's the Kodak moment on their points. Um, but really, the range of Balanchine's work, and that you're going to see tonight very clearly in, in the three very different ballets you're going to see, is phenomenal. Of course, you know that he collaborated uh, very closely with Igor Stravinsky, who was someone who meant a lot to him, but also Balanchine meant a lot to Stravinsky. Stravinsky said about Balanchine, uh, Balanchine reveals things to me in my own music that I didn't know were there. So he's quite, uh, quite a musical choreographer. That's one thing you're going to see tonight. He also worked on Broadway in the 30s, and you can see the influence of Broadway and in Hollywood uh, in his work. He was very influenced by jazz um, and also other, just life around him. I always find that so interesting about uh, Mr. B uh, Balanchine that you know, he came from this imperial tradition, this very classical ballet, and yet he wasn't a snob. He, he enjoyed popular culture oh, and no. took all yeah. of those influences. So talk about yeah. how his, his work reflects those. Those things. Oh, well, Balanchine, you know, I think what's happened in, especially in the United States, ballet gets associated with, oh, it's kind of, you know, you get dressed up to go to the ballet and it's, you know, it's like the opera. It's, it's very, unfortunately, that's the way both a ballet opera, I think, and classical music have been classified in the 20th century in America. But in fact, um, in, the, in the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries, classical music, classical ballet, and uh, opera were really popular, more popular culture. That is, that people knew, you know, what kind of what was coming up at the opera, even if they didn't, uh, even if they didn't go. It was an exciting event. Um, people felt free uh, to really. They enjoyed themselves. I think a lot of contemporary audiences come to the ballet and classical music and to the opera as if it were something they needed to know about. Um, you don't really need to know anything. All you need to do is sit back and enjoy it. Balanchine used to compare watching ballet. How do you? How, someone once asked him, "How do you? How do you prepare to watch ballet?" And he said, "Well, you know, it's like watching anything. It's like watching baseball. Um, if you go to the baseball at the beginning, you're going to be a little bit bored because it's a kind of a slow-moving game, and." Uh, but once you begin to see the rules, you begin to understand. But really, you just need to look. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to think. Um, it becomes a real pleasure. And he encouraged people when they would ask him, you know, well, what do I need to know? What do I need to learn? He would say, just come to the ballet. Look at it. Keep looking. You know, you can look. And um, I think that was really important for him. So he never really saw himself as a great artist, a genius. He saw himself really as a craftsperson. He called himself a, a ballet master. You know, he said, uh, what I do is I, I make ballets like little pies, you know, to sell and people buy them or they don't, they come. My job is to entertain. Um, he was not afraid of using the word entertainment. Um, in regards, he wanted you to be entertained. And as I said, he loved 
uh, all forms of, of dance. He loved folk dance, and you're going to see that in Scotch Symphony tonight, his symphony tonight, his love of Scottish folk dancing and the special kind of look of Scottish folk dancing. Um, he adored American jazz. Um, he loved people like Josephine Baker. He adored Fred Astaire. He thought that Fred Astaire was one of the greatest dancers in the world. And he, uh, certainly the greatest male dancer of the 20th century, he compared Fred Astaire to Bach um, in the depth and richness of his work. Uh, Bonnie Bourne, who, sent, who set the, um, uh, actually set a, a Balanchine Ballet on the students of San Francisco Ballet was telling me a story about how uh, Balanchine once came to her house um, and Bonnie's father, who Bonnie danced in, the, in New York City Ballet, and Bonnie's father is named Halborn and he worked with Fred Astaire in the 30s films with Fred, with, uh, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. He was the musical man. And uh, he said Balanchine sat with his father. He knew every word to every song. Irving Berlin songs and Gershwin songs and Richard Rogers and they, he said they just ignored us. We, they just sat there <laughs> and sang. So he loved popular culture in every way and I think he didn't see a distinction between high art and popular culture. I think what he, what he liked was if it looked good, it was good. You know what I mean? There's great popular culture and there's mediocre popular culture. There's great ballet and there's mediocre ballet. There's great classical music and there's mediocre classical music. And I think Balanchine didn't make distinctions as to genre. If he liked it, he, he knew it was good. Hearing you talk about these influences, jazz and these movies, these you know old mus um, movie musicals, um, and other things that he would just observe around the city, around New York, for, in, yeah, in the United States. Absolutely. He seems very much a product of his time absolutely. and place, and yet his work seems so timeless. Yes. Can you talk yeah. about that? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, you know, um, I, how can I explain this? Um, well, the, you know, Baudelaire, Sorry for going with the French poet, but he, he wrote a really good essay called The Painter of Modern Life. And what he talked about, he was talking about people like Manet and Monet, right, in the 19th century. And he said that he thought that what great artists did was to capture a moment of their time, but at the same time to somehow make it eternal, live it on, make it live on, make it move on. And I think that Balanchine could do that. I think he, he was of his time, but I don't think he ages. Now, Balanchine was worried about that. He said, oh, in a you know, hundred years, everyone's going to think I'm old-fashioned. You know, that's the way it is. Um, but, you know, ballets, like uh, some ballets, like his ballets, and some great works of art last. And, you know, you... Go to see the Sistine Ceiling. It's still damn good, you know. And <laughs> and I find um, I'm a I'm a classical music lover too. I find that Balanchine's a lot like Bach or Beethoven or Mozart. Mozart really. Um, he's really infinitely interesting. And the more you see, the more you see. The more you the more you are acquainted with them. Now, I've been to this program now for the last, every time it's been performed in the last, since Thursday, and I'm not tired at all. 
you know, I'm really, it, it, it's, it's ever invigorating. And this is true not only of people like me who watch, you know, people like you, but I was at New York City Ballet, um, I'm in, doing research in New York right now, I was at New York City Ballet um, during the season in February, and they did a Balanchine ballet that I've seen many times, Vienna Waltzes, and the woman who set Vienna Waltzes, uh, Karen von Arldingen, who was one of Balanchine's last muses, um, he really worked, did some beautiful pieces on her, and I ran out to her, I ran into her in the intermission, and I said, oh, that's so beautiful, isn't that beautiful? I said um, to her, I said, I think every time I see that, I see something new. And she said, every time I see that, I see something new. Here's a woman who knows that ballet inside and out, um, has set it on companies, has danced in it herself, and says, and says something like that. So that really tells you something. You know, I think Balanchine is very much for the audience, but he's also a... Um, an artist's artist. That makes sense. Yeah. Let's turn to the works that we're going to be seeing this afternoon. Um, uh, Divertimento number 15 mm -hmm. is first up on the program. Now, he was known to change his ballets on occasion, but this was originally a completely different ballet that he was going to restage, right. wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, he loved the music of Mozart, and he loved Divertimento number 15, which is really named after the music, not the dance. Um, and he had already set it in a ballet with costumes called uh, Caracol in uh, the 30s, I think, or maybe the 40s. Um, but, you know, his invention is, he had lots and lots of ideas. And um, he said, well, I don't have to do that. He, he thought about mounting it and then no one could remember it. And he said, oh, forget it then, you know let's do something with it, you know, let's do something else with it. And he could do that, you know. So what you got is a great work of art, another one. Um, Divertimento number 15 really reflects Balanchine's musicality. Um, the thing about Balanchine and music, can I do that little, just for a minute, okay. Well, actually, I'll explain what I'm gonna do, okay. And then I'm gonna do it. Um, what Balanchine did was to not use music just as an accompaniment, which happens in a lot of dance, and it's beautiful, it's very nice. But actually, he integrated the steps with the music. So sometimes, um, as Stravinsky said, sometimes he makes you see things in the music that you didn't know were there. So let me just demonstrate. I, this is, I'm going to show you. F just, well, hold on. Wait. Okay. Okay, can you hear me? Yeah, all right. So, well, except I gotta use my hands. Okay, so here, let's just use, do this thing. So this is the music, this is the dance. In a lot of ballets, what you see is this. You know, they parallel each other. The music and the dance parallel each other. But what Balanchine does is to integrate the dance and the music so that another whole is created. Something else, not just this plus this, but this. Does that make sense? Okay, that's the best way I can describe it. And what I would notice in, um, in Divertimento number 15 is this incredible integration with the music, especially in the solo variations. You'll see these dancers, um, and 
you know, they're going to look so calm and so sedate, but actually they're dance, dancing like bats out of hell. I mean, they are really, they are, you'll notice that they are, they're actually other instruments in the orchestra, you know. And you will see, for example, uh, there's a theme in variations, right? And the theme is first stated by two guys up on either side of the stage. And I think it's the, it's the horn that states the themes, right? And you'll see them deal with it with their legs. It's really interesting. Um, and then, as I say, it'll get more and more intricate. And finally, one of the last variations is moving like this, you know. And that dancer is boom. But also adding things to it. You'll know... You know, again, if you don't know music very well, don't worry about that. I mean, I don't want you to be thinking about that every minute, but just be aware that it's so musical. Um, someone said to me last night that they saw it and they thought it was kind of staid. I think in a way what's going on here is that you hear the Mozart music and you see these kind of, these costumes and this kind of very courtly behavior and you think, oh, you know, but watch, watch. And one way you can do that is by putting yourself in the body of one of the dancers. Just get, put yourself in the body of one of those dancers. Listen to the music and make yourself move with them. And then you'll really feel it. I think that's a neat way of doing it. I use it in my classes and my students find that that's helpful. That's really helpful. Don't let the music just watch, wash over you. One thing that Balanchine used to say is that people that People look, but they don't see. People listen, but they don't hear. And you've all had that experience. I mean, you've had that experience, say, reading a book, where you're reading a book, I mean, you're not looking, and you've re you read all the way down to the bottom of the page, and then you say, what did I just read? You know, you're, you're not really in the moment. You're not paying attention. So what you need to be is as alert as you can possibly be, and you'll see really wonderful things. Should we talk about Scottish? Yes. Yeah. How are we doing on time? Uh, we have a few more, a few minutes to talk about that and Fortis. Okay. All right. So should I just do Scotch and sure. Fortis? Okay. So second ballet that you're going to see, Scotch Symphony, reflects Balanchine's love of uh, Scotland and of folk dancing, Scottish folk dancing. He loved all sorts of folk dancing, and he um, he grew up in a culture that did a lot of folk dancing. So he would give advice to young choreographers. He would say. Um, you know, you can do no better than looking at the folk dance of different cultures. They have done everything. Well, uh, in the 50s, uh, the New York City Ballet went to Scotland and toured, toured over, all over Europe. And one of the things that Balanchine did then was to go to this thing called the Edinburgh Tattoo. Um, it's an odd name, but you know, the Edinburgh Tattoo is a kind of ceremonial parade of all the clans in Scotland. Um, with bagpipers that's held every year um, on the ramparts of Edinburgh Castle. It's a beautiful sight. Um, there's the castle up above and then down below these, you know, parade of these kilt-clad uh, people uh, with a really wonderful sound of the bagpipe. It's done at sunset. So Balanchine went to that and he just fell in love. He thought, oh, this is gorgeous. And um, his wife, Maria Tallchief, talks about he just couldn't stop talking about it. And then when he got back to New York, he said, do something with that. And uh, so he created Scotch Symphony. And Scotch Symphony, if you look, you'll see these, uh, hold on, 
see this. You know, kind of thing. You'll see this thing of Highland dancing, uh, and you'll see that. Um, You'll see that port de bras, that carriage of the arms, but you'll also see this really twinkling, fast, fast footwork. If you've ever seen Highland dancing, like Irish dancing, but you know, they don't use hard shoes, they don't make noise, but they move like the devil, you know? They're moving really quick and really fast. And notice in the first solo of Scotch Symphony, um, you'll see this kilt-clad um, soloist, she's wonderful, and she'll be doing all these little beating steps, all hovering around the stage. So it's something you can look for. The other thing that Scotch Symphony reflects is Balanchine's love of dance history, because the first ballet, uh, or one of the first ballets in which dancers actually went on point, was a ballet called La Sylphide, and that was set in Scotland. Um, and it tells the story of a woodland sprite who comes from out from the woods and goes to a, a peasant's cottage where a young man, is, it's his wedding day, and she falls in love with this man, James, um, and she lures him, she tempts him into the woods. She, you know, he's in love, he's going to get married, and... Uh, the sylph keeps appearing. And then at the height of the wedding ceremony, the sylph comes in. And just as James, the hero, is about to put the ring on Effie, she takes the ring. And he's, he's, he's dazzled. You know, he can't help it. So he runs after her. And uh, in the second act, he it takes place in the woods. And he tries to capture her. He's in love with her. He tries to capture her. He keeps going like this. It's a great ballet. He's, she's running, and he's going like this, always out of, out of reach. And um, he, he can't catch her. And Balanchine always used to talk about, um, he thought that's the way life worked, especially male-female relationships. He said, no, he said that, you know, you fall in love, uh, and you have this relationship for a brief period of time and then something happens to come between you and you lose it. A lot of Balanchine's ballets are about unattainable love. The woman who doesn't, who's there, but she, at the end, she has to go. So you'll see that in the second part, middle section of the Scotch Symphony, where you have a sylph figure and a Scotsman, a Scot, Scotsman's figure, a Scotsman, um, who loves her, there's a pas de deux, and you can see him keep trying to keep hold of her, but she keeps moving away. And then finally what happens is that kind of life in the form of other people come between them. You'll see that they'll create a barrier. Now this isn't a literal story, it's more like a kind of a poem um, on Scotch Symphony, you know, on his rem rem remembrances of La Sophie. And then the final, um, act, which is really terrific. It's just a celebration of Scottish dancing. You know what I mean? Everyone's jumping around and having a really good time. And, mm -hmm. and you'll see. Um, it's a beautiful ballet. Uh, let's go on to Four Temperaments, because I'm not sure about the time. Um, Four Temperaments is something completely different. Completely different. The, the dancers look totally different. For one thing, they're not in any kind of cost. They're, I mean, they're not in any kind of. They are dressed, but they're, <laughs> they're wearing leotards and 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 really, what you might think of as practice clothes in a way. But 
their what Balanchine wanted in the Four Temperaments was a kind of stripped down look, a very modern look. And um, Four, temp uh, Four, Temperance, Four Temperaments was done in the 40s. Balanchine had seen modern dance in the form of Martha Graham. He'd also um, seen a tremendous amount of jazz dance and the kind of angles and the use of the hips in jazz dance. You're going to see that in Four Temperaments. This very, this has a very jazzy feel to it, hips jutting out. Um, you'll also see uh, this extraordinary way that Balanchine has of creating these patterns by putting bodies together. You know, um, again, he's interested in this, not in the curves of classical ballet, but in the straight lines and the angles and the vectors that he saw as being part of modern life. When Balanchine came of age um, in the 20s, he was really a jazz baby. He was a product of, the, of Fitzgerald's jazz age. Even though he was in Russia and Paris, they sure knew what was going on. And of the whole look of Art Deco, the streamlining quality, if you've ever seen, or if you've ever seen, for example, the, um, I know you've seen it, the um, Empire State Building. You know, it just zoop up to the skits. doesn't have any of the frills and the columns and the whatever. It's all about kind of straight ahead. If you think of the 30s as being the age of the streamliner, you know, where, again, all the, all the accoutrement, all the little decoration and embellishments get stripped away. And that's what's going on here. You get this power that comes from streamlining the figure. Um, so look for that. You also look for, um, uh, there's a beautiful ending in, in, um, in Fortis that Balanchine said reminded him of, um, he loved the speed of modern life and the dancers form this kind of corridor uh, on stage and, the, and, and, the, and other dancers come through this corridor and they're lifted up and Balanchine said it looked to him like an airplane runway with dancers taking off. You'll see that. The other thing that you should see about four T's is that it's ostensibly based on the idea of the four medieval temperaments, the four humors, that the ancients divided personality types into, depending on what your, uh, what, what was a dominant humor in your body was to your, 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 it's how you were typed or classified as a psychological type. So you'll see the first one is melancholic, um, and that's beautifully danced, gorgeous dance, a man in despair, really. Uh, the second one, sanguinic, uh, a dancer who is, this sanguine person is, is kind of full of life, energy, and vitality. And then right after that, phlegmatic, which phlegmatic, you know what that means, um, a more someone who kind of lays back, who who, who doesn't want to doesn't want to push things forward. And you'll see this. There's wonderful one wonderful moment where Balanchine makes this uh, uh, kind of organization of figures on stage where a phlegmatic kind of crouches down, and these four women surround him, and he kind of peeks through their legs. You know, what I mean, like, okay, am I going to be out there or am I not? Like that. You'll also see at the beginning of his variation, he starts towards one part of the stage and then he goes like this. Nah, I'm not going to do it. Too much trouble. So, um, and then finally, choleric, you know, um, which really means irritable, but this isn't 
what it's about, not angry or irritable, but it's like, whoa, you know, you'll see some really extraordinary dancing, the person who does choleric, wow, you know, they're zooming around the stage like nobody's business, and then that great finale. So I hope that helps. Okay, well, I think that's... <laughs> <laughs> I wish we had more time with you today. Again, our guest is Beth Janay, a professor of dance history and art history at the University of Michigan. Now, we are lucky to have you here for another two events. Um, if you'll look, for those of you here in the audience in your program books, uh, in, there will be a, a schedule of visiting scholar events, and there's an event tomorrow night, and also one of the points of view lectures uh, is Wednesday night, and she'll be speaking there as well. Um, so if you want to hear more, I encourage you to look into that and uh, perhaps attend. Uh, and thank you, everyone, for joining us for this Meet the Artist interview. And as a reminder, this interview and others like it will be available for listening on our website, sfballet.org. And you can find many other wonderful resources, videos, photos, program notes. Uh, so please do go there and visit. And thank you and enjoy the performance.